because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what did they do? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Listen, what are the Greeks known for historically? Wisdom, right? The wisdom of their philosophy. Professing to be wise, what did they do? They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, what's the next word in the next verse, the first word? Therefore, in other words, because man suppressed the knowledge of God and because man chose to make idols to worship for himself instead of worshiping the true living God, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, the lusts of the flesh, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. That's where the, the, the sexual immorality, the homosexuality and everything else comes from. The homosexuality and the, uh, the promiscuous heterosexuality, the adulteries, all of the violence, all of the wickedness, everything that is sinful, everything that you see in the world stems from the fact that man, even though he was given all of the evidence he needed to know to worship the true living God, chose to make statues and images of false things for himself to worship at the heart of all sin is idolatry. Want more evidence? Shake your head, yes. The Ten Commandments, what's the first one? You will have no other gods before me. So God, for the first time in the existence of men, chooses to give men laws. And the first one of those laws is no other gods. What's the second commandment? You will make no graven images, no statues. You won't bow down to any image, right? So the first moment after God called the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai and thundered on that mountain to the point where the people were terrified and then gave them those laws. The first law is no other gods. The second law is don't make anything for yourself to worship. And by the time Paul writes Romans, what's going on? Men have put God completely aside. They've done exactly what he told all mankind not to do, and made images and worshipped images. And so, what did God do? Gave them up, and that giving up by God because man rejected the knowledge of God that he presented caused man to fall into all the stuff that you see and drives you crazy when you see it on the news today. And then some. And not just today, because we think, wow, it's really gotten bad in 2021. Listen, that might be our perspective. All you see in 2021 is the natural progression of what happens when man turns aside from God and chooses to worship other stuff. Predictable and totally natural because God gave them up. And so now they dishonor themselves and they do things with their bodies and they do things among one another that are dishonorable against nature and everything else that it says in this passage. So when Paul comes to Athens and Paul sees all these statues, don't you know he's provoked within himself? But it's not like, it's not like a rage 
Oh, these awful, despicable people. Oh, what's wrong with, what's wrong with these people? And, and, you know, he doesn't call together people to have protest marches, to be angry about all the idols. No, his prov- the provocation causes him to do one thing. That is, share Christ with these people. Because the only thing that can open their eyes is not new politics or new philosophies or anything else. The only thing that, the only thing that can deliver them is the gospel of Christ. And that's still true. That's still true. Amen? Jesus Christ died for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he received all of the just wrath of God against all of our idol worship. And of all of the other sins that fall into place after idol worship sets in. All of the other sin that quite naturally emerges in the life of man after he rejects God and walks away from God. As the prophet said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone and turned to our own way. Jesus died on the cross and took the penalty for all of that. And then he was, this is God's love. This is God's gift. And they buried him in a grave. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And when Paul sees all this idolatry, he's like, I'm going into the synagogue and I'm talking to them. And then I'm going out into the marketplace and I'm talking to them. And anyone who will listen, this idolatry, this, and and, you know, people today, there's a certain historicity about looking at some of the ruins in places like Athens and Rome that are, are wonderful and marvelous and everything. But remember what they represent. Remember what all of that religious idolatry represents. It represents the hard-heartedness, blindness, and doom of man. And so we look at the ruins and it's historically interesting to look at. But Paul walked among that stuff before it was ruins and he was provoked because they didn't know God, man. Wow. So what goes on? In his spirit, he's provoked within him when he sees that the city was given over to idols. So what does he do? He goes in the synagogue, which we've seen him do already. He reasoned in the synagogue. But it's interesting we get no detail in this account of what happened in the synagogue, do we? Nothing. Other than the fact that like like the other synagogues in Gentile lands, there were Jews and there were Gentiles who were worshipers of God. He says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, Right? So there were Gentile worshipers in there. And the word Gentile in that verse is in italics in the New King James Version, which I should point out means that the word was inserted to in the English translation to help us understand what the intention of the writer was. In this case, that is a very useful insertion because that is what he's talking about. He's distinguishing between the Jews and the worshipers. The Jews were worshipers, but the worshipers that Nettie points out separate from the Jews are Gentiles, right? and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So, you know, because when do the Jews meet? They meet on the Sabbath. So, like, Paul's, like, waiting for his squad to show up, and, and he sees the city is all given over to idols. So he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, presumably, and he speaks to them. But what about all the days in between? Well, he goes out into the marketplace. And I love this. With whoever happens to be there, he speaks with them. I read this. And it's so cool that we get to read this like right after we did the, uh, the street fair, right? Because that kind of is like what I get in my mind is a picture of just like some open marketplace with people walking around, you know, 
and, and Paul's just walking among them and trying to talk to them, anyone who will listen, about the danger that they're in because of all of this idolatry and the mercy and the love and the grace of the true God, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it says, he goes in the marketplace, anyone who happens to be there, he tries to reason with them. And verse 18 tells us this, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And, and you know, I, I, uh, Epicureanism and Stoicism are, they're, they're the kind of thing that Athens is famous for, right? They are, they're, they're philosophies. It's a philosophical view of existence that is intended to drive how a person lives. The, the disciples, if you will, of Epicurus are people who were taught to follow their sensations. It was a very sensual philosophy. It basically, if you, it's not this simple, and I don't profess to be a real understander or expert in it at all, but basically the idea of Epicureanism is if it feels good, do it. Stoicism, the word stoic, of course, is still something we use in English to describe somebody who displays no emotion, right? And so stoicism, the school of stoicism from the same period, is basically the opposite, not directly, but stoicism basically means you try to suppress emotion as much as possible. Even if trouble or difficulty comes in your life, you are, you are taught to not react emotionally to it. Right, And while there may seem to be a certain external or carnal value to some of that, both of these things are under the heading of what? Humanism. They're both very humanistic philosophies that emerged as the quite natural byproduct. I'm not saying the people who practiced them weren't religious. I'm sure they had their gods that they worshipped. But the philosophies themselves were rooted in what the Greeks considered their far superior wisdom, wisdom of men. And so these philosophers are there in the marketplace and they hear Paul going around from person to person trying to reason with them about Jesus. Now, watch the reaction to this. I want to explain and encourage you regarding why things like our street fair, things like our picnics when we invite people, dinners when we invite people, anything anything that we do together that's evangelistically driven, or if you want to really strictly follow Paul's example, he was alone. So even on his own time, you know, he was like looking for people to witness to. And I want to explain to you and encourage you why that is such a good practice. So these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they said... What does this babbler want to say? And the idea of babbler, there's a marginal note in the New King James Version that says the word literally means seed picker. I don't know why they would call him that, but I do know this. The Listen, because Paul was actually a seed planter, wasn't he? Right? So, so but, but the idea is that it's derogatory, right? So the philosophers... They have a derogatory view of the fact that Paul is going through the marketplace preaching this strange stuff. Now, that might be enough to dissuade a Christian from witnessing. None of these people are interested. These people are mocking. 
these, 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 these intelligent, philosophically driven people, I'm saying these things, but it doesn't seem to be getting me anywhere other than the fact that they're grumbling among themselves about me being a babbler. And that might discourage him. But look what comes next. Others. Can we dwell on the word others for a minute? Others is a blessed, beautiful word. Do you know why others is a good word as it's used in context here? You can try to share the gospel and encounter rejection after rejection after rejection. And guess what? There are always others. Right? As long as God has us with breath preaching the gospel to other people, that's evidence alone that there are others who need to hear it. And look what the reaction of these others are. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Right? That's a good, honest perspective because, because they believe in multiple gods. Right? And so they hear Paul talking about this God who has a son who will bring salvation and he died and he rose from the dead. And they, they hear about this and it's like, huh, maybe he's not really a babbler. He's, he's proclaiming to us about foreign gods. And what do they say? It, it says it's because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so verse 19 tells us this. I love this. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, the ruins of which you can still see in Athens today and is even marked with a plaque to honor the Apostle Paul, believe it or not, who would have spoken there in some place at some point in history, this being the occasion we're reading right here. That's pretty cool. Now, I love this. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you're bringing some strange thing to our ears. Now, look, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were like, what is this babbler saying? You know, they were disparaging of it and they were putting it down. But then we're told that there were others who were actually like, he seems to be talking about another God. And then they bring him to the Areopagus and they say, we want to hear this. Will you, will you please tell us what it is? Listen. In your evangelistic efforts, don't ever get discouraged if lots of people don't listen and if people even mock. And may I say, in my own experience, trying to evangelize for many, many years, my experience is that most people either receive it with indifference or, or, or just kind of with a polite but, uh, but firm, no, no, thank you, right? Um, sometimes it's mocked. Sometimes I'm viewed as like a simpleton because I believe in God and I believe in this Jesus. And you, if you try to witness and try to evangelize, you experience all those things too. But may I remind you, there's always others. And if you allow yourself, listen, if you allow Satan to infiltrate your own thoughts to the point that you make decisions based on decisions about how you're going to serve the Lord based on the fact, well, look, these people are mocking me, these people are this, these people are that, then guess what? You might miss out on the others that God might have for you. Listen, what did Jesus teach when he sent his disciples out two by two? If they don't receive you, what? Shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. Don't get discouraged in the preaching of the gospel if people, when they hear it, they put you down or they mock it or they reject it. Move on. Preach the gospel to every creature. That's what we're told to do. 
And guess what? You and I, sitting in this room, if we all together share in a mutual faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which I hope is true, including you that are watching online, if that's true, we are proof of the fact that somebody somewhere who preached the gospel, who probably at some point had been discouraged when someone rejected them before it came to us, They persisted and God kept them going and they continued to share the gospel and now you and I are saved and we're here. So keep going. Keep going. They actually invited him in. Now it says here what? Verse 21. All the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. So now, there's even perhaps underpinning all of this, another spirit that could be a discouragement. These people aren't really interested in Jesus. These people aren't really interested in what Christianity has to say. They're just, they love just hearing spicy new stuff. Right? And here comes something that's different. And so, hmm, let's hear more, right? And so they and so they bring him in. Listen, you'll encounter that as well. There are always people who, when they hear the gospel, there's like an initial burst of excitement about it. But then as soon as they realize what it really is, which is something very simple, something very uncomplicated, something that involves no religion or or no effort on their part something that doesn't give them anything that they themselves can hang their hat on, but it's all just a call to repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when they begin to realize, hey, if you're going to follow and serve Jesus, and you're going to trust in Jesus, and you're going to live godly in Jesus' name in this life, you're going to get persecuted. And you're going to have to, as soon as they realize that, boom, they're gone. That's the parable of the sower, right? Right? Amen? You, You know all these things? So, Paul just continues to go. However, and you'll see at the end of this that even though he doesn't even completely get through what his message is, he gets cut off very abruptly at one point. He does actually have a few people that join with him in Athens, preaching in a place when he had no time to prepare. Right? He's just like, let's just grab this, grab this babbler, grab, well, not the ones who said the babbler, but the others. We want to hear this. And they take him up to the place where it is their custom to listen to such things. And they put him up there. All right, so that's, that's, that's as much as I want to say about the first part of this. Because now I want to get into what the message actually is. But you see the encouragement that it is there to witness, right? You see, you see, like, I think there's something to be said in that section to modern Christians about what our eyes and our hearts are set on and what we really permit to provoke us. I'm not saying that we live in some bubble and we don't notice the evils in the world and we never have anything to say about it, but when you're really walking closely with the Lord and you're really committed to His gospel, the ministry of His gospel, as we're all supposed to be, I think this this attitude that's in Paul should be a little bit in all of us. Don't you think? Like, this is our mission. I mean, the book of Acts is written to show us our mission. You understand that, right? It's not just history that we look at and, yay, we cheer for the people that are in there. It's showing us our mission. 
And so Paul's provoked by the idolatry and it causes him to preach the gospel. And even when they mock him, he presses on because there's always others. And he ends up at the Areopagus ready to preach the gospel to them. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. Stay strong in the Lord. Stay strong to what the commitment is because even if you're getting rejected a lot, God, you don't know how God is using it. You really don't, right? Hallelujah. One last word. I, I, this is something I didn't think of. It just came to my mind now. But I've told you my story about how I got saved. I just want to say this to encourage you. I, I, I got saved like right before I went into the Air Force. I was 18. But I think I've told you the story that sometime before that, when I was much younger, I had been invited to go. This is in the 1970s now. I had been, I had been invited to go as a kid to uh, Sunday school at an evangelical Lutheran church in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And I uh, I'll never forget this, but that's the first place where, like, I heard the gospel, you know? And, like, nothing came out of it, but I know that, like, in that moment, I heard and I understood what needed to be understood about Jesus and about salvation. Somebody, somebody planted some seeds in me then, that didn't come to fruition for years later, and I don't even remember their names, right? Maybe I was, as a kid, going to that Sunday school only for a period of weeks, and then I was, like, pulled out of it. And maybe the teacher in the Sunday school was discouraged because they never saw me around anymore. I don't even know her name. It was an older lady. And... uh now I'm a pastor of a church and preaching from the Bible to all of you. And, and whoever she was, she has no idea, right? But listen, but listen, that's, that's what it is sometimes to preach the gospel. You just give it out and you're faithful and you just trust the Lord. And at the end of the day, we don't take credit for anything anyway, right? We just rejoice that our names are written down in his book, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're just grateful to God that we ourselves are saved, right? And when we give out the gospel, we're just in gratitude and in obedience and in faithfulness, giving out what he has given to us. And then, however, I mean, it should actually be encouraging for Christians to know that whatever the result of preaching the gospel is, is all in God's hands. It's, if you give out the gospel faithfully, how a person responds is not what determines whether you're a success or a failure or not. Because there's always others. In this case, others who actually asked, please share this stuff with us. We want to know it. They're out there, folks. See, here's what we need. We need Christians that are committed to being like what we're being taught here. Available to preach. Available to share. And we have tools. Paul didn't have gospel tracts. Right? But we do. We have literature. We can hand to people and just say, here, read this. And it's good, quality, solid messages that they can read. And seeds can be planted that way. You, all sorts of things. You, get, you can invite people to church. Paul didn't have that in Athens. There was no church to invite anybody to. Right? So, use whatever God's given you, man, and go after it. And don't get discouraged. That's Listen, this is disciple-making happening right now. We're telling you these things, and then we plan events, and we invite you to come and participate in them so you can be part of it. This is what it is. I don't know what you think disciple-making is. I don't know what you think church is supposed to be. This is what it's supposed to be. 
is a group of people who love the Lord, love one another, worship together, pray together. We're a testimony to our community together. And we go out into the marketplace or wherever it is that God sends us and we spread the word of the gospel. And we do that for our lives until he calls us home. And then we rejoice with him forever. Sound good? I want in on that. So let's go. And don't, don't give up. Don't give up. All right. Now, so Paul stands up. Now, here we are at verse 22. You ready to hear Paul's sermon? I don't know if I'll get through all of this today. It's okay if we don't. Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, now here's his sermon. Listen to this. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now look, look, at, look at the cleverness and the, just the, 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 the brilliance, really, of this. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. That's his introduction, right? With all of that, he stands up to introduce what he's about to do by saying, I walked around, I saw your temples, I saw your statues, I saw all of your religion, and I happened to see one that you wrote on yourself to the unknown God. That's the one I'm going to tell you about, the one that you don't know, right? I like that. Now, in earnest, the content of his message starts here in verse 24. So let me just read 24 to the end. And that's where we'll spend our time. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of, all, of, of this to all by raising him from the dead. And that's the end of the sermon. It's not really the end, right? I mean, I mean, he got right up to the point now where he's ready to tell them about God and about Jesus, right? But as soon as they hear this rising from the dead, they're done. Look, and these are the others, right? These are the noble ones who are like, we want to hear what you have to say. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Now look at this. However, some men joined him and believed. Isn't that great to know? 
So it's like, so it's like he, 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 he first encounters the philosophers. What's this babbler have to say? But there's some of the others. We want to hear what you have to say. So they take him to the Areopagus. As soon as he gets to the resurrection of Jesus, they're like, ah, that's it. Eh, we'll hear you some other time. And they're done. But there's still, even among that group, there are some who believed and joined him. And that's why when you evangelize, you press on and you press through. You understand? You keep going. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You just keep going. You leave what's behind behind and you keep going. Well, I really blew it that day. You know, I've never really been good at this. You know, I really struggle with my thoughts. I really struggle with my emotions. I, I don't think I can say all this stuff very well. I don't know. I don't know. Excuse, excuse, reason, reason. Forget it all. Go forward. Because you don't know. Listen. God doesn't just use like professional, eloquent people to spread the gospel. The gospel of Christ is primarily spread by like the woman at the well. Come and hear a man who's told me everything that I did. Or the shepherds who were out in the field who, after they heard these things, they, made, they went and they made widely known the things that the angel that night had spoken to him. Right? I mean, I mean, you know, uh, uh, the centurion, uh, Cornelius, gathers his whole family. The people at the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, they gathered the whole city together to come in. That's how the gospel gets spread, is individuals who heard it, believed it, go out and share it with others. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's preaching in the marketplace. He shares with everyone he can. They reject him. In the Areopagus, he doesn't even get all the way through the message that he wants to share. They cut him off when he talks about the uh, resurrection. They break up. They all leave. But there's still a few that stay and they believe and they join him. Hallelujah. Among them, Dionysius, look, the Areopagite. You recognize the word, right? I mean, what's an Areopagite? It's somebody who's committed to what's going on in the Areopagus. I don't know what his position was. I don't know anything else in the Bible about him. But he's probably a guy who sat there day after day after day, week after week after week, and heard every single strange, weird, corrupt thing that people had to say. And when the gospel of Christ was preached that day, he believed. Isn't that awesome? And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So there are those who joined in, you see. Let's break down this message that Paul preach to them. I love this. What's the f- it starts really in earnest in verse 24. I love this. Notice that he does not start the same way that he does with the messages that he preaches in the synagogues. Why? He's preaching to a different audience. So he doesn't just start in with God called our fathers, spoke to them in the wilderness, gave them the commandments through Moses, and then the prophets said this and that. He doesn't delve into that. He meets them where they are. Right? He doesn't come at them giving them the entire history of Israel. Because it's a different audience. It's a Greek audience. And none of that's going to mean anything to them. And he doesn't want to get bogged down. Now listen, eventually you become a believer. You begin to study God's word and you learn all of that. But you don't necessarily need to know all of those details for a person to get saved. 
And what Paul's interested in doing is sharing with them, there is a God, and with all of your religion, you're missing him. But this God is angry with sin. And we're all sinners. And because he loves you, he gave Jesus his son who died for you and rose from the dead. That's what Paul's interested in getting at. So look where he starts. What's the first thing he says? God, what? Who made the world and everything in it. Right? So the first thing that he does is he hits them with, you need to understand that the God I'm preaching to you is our creator. In this way, he's different from the multiplicity and the pantheon of gods that the Greeks worshipped. By saying that he's our creator, he is in essence saying that he's the only one. He made everything. There isn't a God of the world and a God of people and a God of this activity and a God of that activity and a God over this part of the world, a God over the ocean, a God over the mountains, God over thunder and lightning, God over trees and vegetation, God over all sorts of... No, there's one God who made everything. Praise the Lord. And that's where he starts. That's where John started when he wrote the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And what does he say next? All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. You want to know why, whether it's in the public education system, or in popular media and culture, or anywhere else, the idea of God as Creator is vehemently undermined is because God as our creator is the foundation and the underpinning of everything that we believe in the gospel. There is one God who gave us life and we are accountable to him. I mean, that's really what it's about. There is a single God who made everything and we belong to him. We are accountable to him and we're in trouble because we've walked away from him and we're sinning against him. And that's why he gave Christ. If you can pull the rug out from under God as creator, you seriously undermine the work of the gospel. And that's why, that's why it's important for us always to affirm God as creator and worship God as our creator. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. In other words, God is the one who existed when there was nothing and spoke and brought it into existence. The worlds were framed by the word of God. That is to say, nothing existed and God spoke and then stuff existed. And God created it all. It's the foundation. Listen, that's Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. You know what Hebrews 11 is about, right? It's about faith. That's the, the hall of fame of faith, as they call it. In the discussion of faith, the first thing that he lays down is that God is our creator. When Solomon is writing to his son... Right? He's writing in Proverbs, and so many of those are addressed to his son. Very early in the book, in Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon says this, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up, and clouds dropped down the dew. So it shows there, his point in Proverbs is to exalt the importance of wisdom. And the way that he does it there is by showing that God 
employed wisdom when he created and as he continues to sustain his creation. But God is our creator. That's at the foundation of the gospel, especially for these Gentiles. You notice that when Paul goes into the synagogue, he doesn't do that. Because to the synagogue audience, they're aware of Yahweh. They've grown up being taught the law. They've been grown up. They've grown up on the singing the Psalms. They've grown up on the wisdom of Proverbs. They've grown up on the promises of the prophets. They know Yahweh of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. So, so Paul doesn't have to approach the synagogue by saying, there's one God and I just want you to know about this God. When he stands in front of them, even the Gentile worshipers who are in there, they know about Yahweh, the one true living God. But when he stands in the Areopagus, he's standing in front of a bunch of people that worship anything and everything. So I want you to know there's a God and he made all of us. That's how he starts it. That's fantastic. Isn't that beautiful? So God, who made the world and everything in it, look at it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So now what does he do? He describes God as sovereign over everything. Heaven and earth encompasses everything that they would know. Heaven and earth encompasses the invisible and the visible. Heaven and earth encompasses our realm and God's realm. It's everything, right? He is sovereign over everything. And then what he gets into, what was it that provoked Paul to preach the gospel? What was it? The idolatry, right? This whole message is basically to bring conviction of the sin of idolatry. And watch how he does it. For people who don't know the law of Moses, or even Moses' God. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. That's a, that's, a, that's a provocative thing to say in the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a temple that was made with men's hands. <laughs> He's standing in a temple that was made with men's hands and proclaims God doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands. They have statues all over the place. God doesn't dwell in that. No. So he goes right after it. Right after the idolatry. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. I love that statement. God doesn't need anything from us. Look, look at me, everybody. At the heart and at the root of all humanistic religions or humanistic philosophies, at the heart of it is the exaltation of ourselves. Right? And so the approach to God, whatever supposed God it may be, at the approach, at the heart of the approach to him is here's what I can bring and here's what I can offer. You know? Like that song, that we, the hymn we just sang a minute ago. Nothing I bring. That's what makes the gospel so different. Every religion in the world tells you what you should bring to God, what you should sacrifice for God, what you should do for God. Christianity tells you up front, you can't bring anything. Just my sinful, broken, contrite, repentant heart and my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he, give, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Hey, see, 
Paul, Paul's like, we're talking to philosophers here. I'll play some philosophy. You want me to play the philosophy game? I'll play the philosophy game with you. How do you bring something to God who gave us everything? What is it that you can bring to God? What is it that you can bring to God when everything you have was given to you by him? That's basically what he's saying there, right? So it's like, Paul's like, he's good, man. I mean, the Lord's really working. I'm like, Paul's playing their game. That's a very philosophical statement that he's making there, right? It's like, it's like you're, 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 you can't bring anything to God. What are you going to bring him? An animal to sacrifice? God made it. What, what, what are you going to, to, to bring? Fruit from the ground or, or, or money or what? God, God, it's all just stuff. The air you breathe was made by God. The heart that's beating inside of you, the brain you're thinking with, were spoken into existence by God. And before he spoke them into existence, he thought of them and then spoke them into happening. What are you going to bring to him? What kind of temple or statue are you going to make that's going to impress someone who spoke to make the marble or, or whatever it is that the temples are made out of exist to begin with? Right? What kind of heap of stones are you going to erect to the one who spoke and made the stones come into existence? That's the bottom line, right? That's why in the Old Testament, when God did occasionally command the building of an altar, it was always with uncut stones. Stones that were not cut with men's hands, right? What is man going to do that's going to impress God? He has made, look at this, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. What does that mean? Complete sovereignty. Look at, who were the Greeks? The Greeks were wise. What do we know historically about Greeks? We know democracy, right? And, and we, even in the modern day, we worship democracy, even though, even though the founders of our own country knew better, right? I mean, America, I'm not going to get all political here, but, but America is not strictly a democracy. The actual, the wisdom of the founders of our country is they knew that that wouldn't work, right? It's, it's mob rule, right? The majority is not always right. And so they designed a government in America that has a very deliberate separation of powers, right? All the elections are democratic, but, but they're not elections of a single ruler. They're elections of representatives and senators who then all come together to form a government where all the power is divided up and split up. And even that's not perfect because it's subject to the corruption of man. Look, what, what, is, what is Paul really saying here? Number one, God doesn't need your temples. Number two, God doesn't need your statues. Number three, God doesn't need your philosophy and your politics. That's not how God is sought. That, that is not how God is worshipped. God actually, with all of the maneuverings and strivings of man, everything that's happening with the, the rise of nations and the fall of nations, it says here, you see the word pre-appointed? Do you see the word pre-appointed there? Everything that's happening, World War I, World War II, you know, I mean, thinking in terms of what we think of as recent history, but obviously more than all of that's just pre-appointed stuff by God. It's just God working out in time his plan. Why? It says in verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Boy, do I love that statement. In other words, God created, listen to this, everybody. God created everything and established everything in such a way, and God continues to sovereignly, God continues to sovereignly rule 
in such a way that men ought to be able to find him. Anywhere in the world. That's why David wrote what in Psalm 19? The heavens declare his glory. Just look in the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day speaks. Every day the creation cries out and speaks. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. There is nowhere in the world where people can't find God. God has made himself findable. And, 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 and you Greeks, with all of your statues and all of your temples, you need to realize that's not how he's found. You build a temple. You build a statue. God spoke and made the stars exist. We can't even measure or count them all. God spoke and made the earth exist. You don't go to a temple or to a statue to worship God. You look around and you see, wow, God made all of this. You look around and you use your mind that God gave you and you realize that all of the diversity and all of the order to it all, it must have been made by someone. It could not have just happened this way. I mean, I mean, life doesn't even exist on earth unless the earth is, in, is the exact size and the exact spot that it's in. You know, any closer to the sun, no life. Any farther away from the sun, no life. The earth, the, the sun is 400 times the size of the moon. In the sky, they appear exactly the same size because the sun is also 400 times the distance from the earth that the moon is. We're, we're, a thinking person doesn't look at that and say that happened by accident. It's put like that for a reason. To measure out seasons and years. All of it, all of the minute, the sun rises one end and seems to, as the earth rotates, goes to the other end and seems to set, right? All of that's put in design by God. He thought it all through. And it all declares God established and ruled things so that men might grope for him and find him. But what does man do? He rejects him and makes statues of other gods to worship instead. And that's what provoked Paul. And that's why Paul, when he speaks at the Areopagus, goes right after their idolatry. Zechariah, the prophet. We did a study of Zechariah not too long ago, right before the pandemic started. If you remember this or not. But Zechariah chapter 13, speaking of the day of the Lord, said, It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. In that day, there will be no false idols. In that day, there will be no need for prophets because only God's truth will exist and every unclean spirit will be gone. That's how much God detests idolatry because the perspective that God has is so much bigger and proper than ours. God's perspective is he can see the destruction. He can see the absolute peril man has placed himself in, the danger man has placed himself in by worshiping other gods. And so Paul goes right after it, right after it in this message. Amen? Then he goes on. 
I love this statement that he's not far from each one of us. You remember Thursday night, you know, we were going through Psalm 34. And it says he's near to the one who's contrite in heart, right? You know what's amazing? Listen to this. I was thinking about this. Man has this, like, gap, gulf fixed between him and God that in his own efforts he could never leap, right? Because of sin, we are completely alienated from God. And yet, he is as close as believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? God is as, we are as separate and as diametrically opposed to God in and of our natural selves because we are completely and entirely corrupt and depraved and sinful. You cannot be more lost than men are lost. And yet, God, in His grace and in His design, has made it so that actually He's very close to each one of us. That's what Jesus died for. Jesus died on the cross you know, and rose from the dead so that through simply believing the gospel, a man is what? Reconciled to God. When you witness to people, I, I, don't, I don't always say that, but this is a great thing to say to people when you witness to them. God's not far from you, man. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past religious experiences are. God's right here, man. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Glory to the Lord. Well, give me a minute or two here. I've got to finish this. For in Him, He says, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also His offspring. Any study Bible, I'm no expert in this at all, but I can read the notes in my study Bible. Any study Bible will tell you there's a quotation of a Greek poet called Epimenides. And uh, that's as much as I know about that. Not really interested in Greek poetry, but Paul knew it. And Paul used it right there. And he uses it to spring into his next point. We are also his offspring, speaking of being the offspring of God. And look how he takes off on that. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or basically everything that's important to you Greeks. Something shaped by art and man's devising. So that's the portion of the sermon where he attacks gently, respectfully, but picks apart their idolatry. You can't bring anything to God. You can't worship him in statues or stones. He doesn't need your temples, your statues, or your philosophy, or your politics. Amen. Verse 30 is the call. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Now ready? now commands all men everywhere to repent. Not just Jews. Repentance is not just a call to Jews to go from rejecting Jesus as Messiah to accepting Him as Messiah. This is a call to Gentiles to repent of their idolatry and their sin. Right? 
Later in the book of Acts, in chapter 26, it says that Paul, when he's recounting his own ministry, he says, I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles, everyone, everyone, that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. That's Acts 26 and verse 20. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning away from your sinfulness and turning to faith in God. It's as simple as that. Repentance is not works. Repentance is not, I'm going to earn my salvation by, you know, trying to be good and obeying God's laws. No, God's laws teach us that we can never do that because we disobey them all the time. Repentance is the recognition that I cannot justify myself by my religion or by any other method of works. I am sinful against God and I am rightfully, properly judged and condemned by him. Repentance is that brokenness that comes from recognizing I have sinned against God and I am on the hook for it. And then in that repentance, a person turns. It's that turning that's so important. In that repentance, a person turns to God and believes the gospel and receives salvation. Now, what is the gospel? That's what he gets at, but it gets cut off, right? Because first he warns them of judgment. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained. So the time is coming when everyone's going to be judged for all this stuff by this man that God has appointed. It's a reference to Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one, right? So he's pointing them to Messiah and he's getting ready to point them to Jesus. He's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And then he gets cut off, right? Ah, no, uh, some mocked, it says in verse 32. Others said, we'll hear you again on the matter. So Paul leaves, but some of them did join in, right? Praise the Lord. So presumably, some of them he had the opportunity after it was over to share the rest of the story. This one that I'm talking about, his name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he's the son of God. And he gave his life. He died receiving the penalty that's coming on that day. He died receiving the penalty against our sins. And they buried him. And on the third day he rose from the dead. You repent and you put your faith in him. And you will be saved. You will be delivered from that judgment that is coming. You will know the true and the living God. And you will recognize the futility, the utter waste that all of this idolatry is. And some of them believed. It's a great message, right? Well, I'm a little past 11.30, so I think we're going to end it there. If you, we're not going to sing the last hymn. It's two weeks in a row. I'm sorry. I don't want to get into that habit, but needed to share all these things. If you, there's two things I want to say as I end. If you need strength to be like Paul and be a faithful witness and a faithful evangelist, may I encourage you, pray Commit yourself to the works and the assembly of the church and just open your heart to however God may use you. So many of us, the extent of our exercise of faith is just going to church on Sunday or whatever. Some not even that. We are called to be part of a body that reaches out to the gospel and never gives up because we always know there are others. There are those out there to hear. Pray 
and commit yourself to the work of Christ if you're a Christian. Secondly, if you're not a believer, man, when that day comes, you're facing God's judgment and there's nothing you can do to justify yourself. Humble yourself. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for your sins and that He rose from the dead. If you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus, He will save you. Our Father, we thank You for this time we've had together today. We thank You for Your Word and we thank You for all of Your goodness to us. May the Word that is preached today, the truth and power of Your Gospel, Work in the hearts of all who hear. Let your will be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.